Well, it's great to tell God and remind us what God really wants from us was, was our hearts. God wants to be in relationship with us, and he wants a deep relationship with us. And that's where the heart is. It's the depth of who we are. Well, last week, I don't know how convicted you were. I was pretty convicted about being a Pharisee. One more week of conviction. I tell you, the, the challenge of this passage has really wrestled with me as well. But before we dive into the passage, I want to tell you, I've been reading a book for our, our series, Plotline. We're taking different books like Oliver Twist and, and Moby Dick and showing how these pieces of literature speak to the gospel. So about nine months ago, I was reading Gulliver's Travels. Like I'd seen lots of uh, movie versions of it, some good versions and some really bad versions. Um, but I'd never read the actual book that was written in the 1900s. It's a fascinating political satire about a guy named Gulliver who's coming from England, representing the kingdom of England, and he gets deposited in these other kingdoms. And when he gets these other kingdoms, he finds they have a totally different value system, a, wholly different, a wholly, totally different way of thinking about things and processing things. And so he has to actually articulate his kingdom to another kingdom. So he comes to the first kingdom, and he's huge, right? So, so Gulliver is like really tall in the first kingdom, and everybody's really small. And when he gets there, he realizes, besides being strapped down, that they've been fighting for generations this war. And so he's going to try and convince little people that there's a bigger world than the things they're fighting about. He asks them, by the way, why are you at war? And they say, well, we, we've been at war for generations. We're the big enders and they're the little enders. Why are you the big enders and little enders? And he finally figures out that two generations ago, there was a big fight over how to have breakfast. Do you crack the egg on the big end or the little end? And there was such a division that's created a multi-generational war over whether you break the egg on the big enders or the little enders. And he's trying to explain that maybe there's a bigger world, bigger things to fight about than how to crack your egg. Then he goes to the next kingdom. And now he's really, really small. And here he's pontificating to the queen of this nation who's running her kingdom with a socialistic type mindset. And she says, oh, it's so wonderful here. Nobody envies anyone here. Everyone gets along here. Well, he comes in as the smallest person in the kingdom, but there's a jester who was popular in the kingdom because he was really short and sort of did lots of entertainment. Well, he is so mad that he's lost his popularity and his, his niche. He's trying to kill and even eat Gulliver. So now little bitty Gulliver is trying to explain to this queen that maybe her socialistic utopia isn't as great as she thinks they are. Not only is there envy in the kingdom, but somebody's trying to eat him. He's imprisoned, he's used and entertained. And as he goes from kingdom to kingdom, from, from the Winhams to, to the floating island, you see this man trying to articulate one kingdom to a kingdom with a totally different value system. And I thought to myself, that's really what God has called us to do, is that we are representatives of a kingdom, totally different value system, totally different way of thinking about money and time and identity. And instead of taking us to heaven, God leaves us in this kingdom, the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air, that we can represent what God's reign looks like, where we live, how we laugh, how we love, how we interact. So here's the question. What would people discover about God's kingdom by exploring your kingdom? 
I mean, if your kingdom is the area you have influence or reign over, your family, your division, your company, your neighborhood, the areas you influence, how you participate, how you live, laugh, and love, if people watched you for a day, followed you for a month, what would they discover about God's kingdom by exploring how you are interacting in your kingdom? To that, we're going to look at three questions. Each one's going to prod us and maybe convict us or at least ask us to go deeper on this issue. And as we go deeper into this issue, I hope it's going to answer the age-old question, what on earth are we here for? Because if the goal was to get us to heaven, then the minute we come to know Jesus, he'd be like, suck you up to heaven. But he leaves us here. Why? To be ambassadors of his kingdom. So the first question relates to time. Time. Is my life about building my castle or expanding his kingdom? If somebody followed you and took notes for a day on how you spent your time, would they come to the conclusion that life as a follower of Jesus is really ultimately about building your own castle? Or would they notice how you spend your life expanding the kingdom, serving, investing, Caring for other people. Serving other people. See, it says in the passage, it came to pass afterward that he, Jesus, went through every city, village, preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. So let's go backwards to the afterward. What just happened last week? Last week there was a party. The Pharisees threw the party. And they thought they knew God and knew what God's kingdom was about. It's about being a Pharisee, separating yourself, and not being like those people who do those things. And Jesus is sitting around the table, and, and they don't even think he's a prophet from God, let alone a representative of the kingdom, because he's letting people like this prostitute come in here. Uh, she doesn't even belong in the party, let alone the kingdom, and she's making a, a social faux pas. She's crying. She's pouring a whole year's wages onto his feet. What a waste. That can't be the kingdom. And Jesus says, not only is this the kingdom... My kingdom includes all, and my kingdom is about those who love much. And he turns to the Pharisees, you guys don't love much, because you don't realize how much you've been forgiven. She realizes how much she's been forgiven, and those who've been forgiven much, love much. And coming right out of that account, that the kingdom, all are invited. The kingdom, all can be forgiven. The kingdom... It's about how much you love God. Comes into this passage, and Jesus now is spending his time doing what? He's doing a lot of travel, looks like. He's going through every city. That's a lot of cities. Every village. That's a lot of village. And what is he doing? He is proclaiming. That's what preaching means. He's talking about, he's proclaiming and bringing to people the glad tidings, good news about what? The kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom? The kingdom is wherever the king reigns, where the king's will is done, where the king's values are put in place. And Jesus says, wherever I go, you get to experience the kingdom. Sometimes that's through healing. Sometimes that's through grace. Sometimes that's because of truth. Sometimes it's because of courage. But you're going to see what the kingdom looks like. And in general, the feeling when you heard it was it was glad tidings. This is good stuff. The glad tidings of the kingdom. You're experiencing the kingdom. You're, you're delving into the kingdom. 
the glad tidings of the kingdom are here. Now, as you dive into the kingdom, I begin to ask myself, like, what, what is it in my life that people notice when they observe my life? Am I about building my own castle or expanding the kingdom? What do people see? If you followed me around and saw the kind of stories I, I tell, are my stories about making me look good and other people look bad? Uh, am I about positioning myself? Do you see me constantly envying other people and other things? How am I positioning my time? Am I organizing my life around expanding other people, inviting other people into the forgiveness of God, inviting other people into experiencing the, the beauty of who God is and what he wants to do in your life? I remember years ago, I had a good friend. We were just moving up here to Cincinnati. We've been friends with this couple for about six years. And so they had observed us in every stage of life and marriage and everything else. So as we're leaving, he says, Chad, I got to tell you something before you leave. You've become one of my best friends. He said, Ann, I have just got to see you in every possible circumstance. He said, I got to tell you, watching you and Beth and your marriage and your family life, here's one thing I've noticed. He said, you and Beth have an amazing ability. I mean, you make marriage look incredibly hard. <laughs> what a jerk. And he says, he's genuinely trying to compliment me. I'm like, keep going? He said, you guys are so different. Like some people have just easy marriages because you think easy about everything. You guys think so different. So many different perspectives, how you come about stuff. And I have watched you, though you're different, adapt to one another. Not hold bitterness toward one another. Really enjoy your marriage. Enjoy your friendship. Despite the fact that I can tell that it's not necessarily always easy. And I have noticed that. And he says, and I, I came from a family that didn't love well. And I certainly didn't parent well. And watching you with your kids, and they were like three or, three or five years old at the time, he said, watching you with your kids is like constantly watching the best family parenting clinic I've ever seen. Like, well, there's a compliment in there. But what he was, he was noticing is that in the challenges, in the differences, he was noticing the kingdom. What does forgiveness look like? What does prioritizing one another look like? What, is, what does grace and truth and relationship look like? That's what he was noticing. What would people notice about you in the way you shape and spend your time? Would they notice the kingdom? Second question, grace. Is God, what he's done for you, what he's entrusted to you, what he's given to you, the time and place in history he's allowed you to be born into, is the grace, the gifts from God, is God ultimately just an update for me? to update my life, to make my life more comfortable, to make my life have better circumstances? Is God ultimately just an update for me or is what God's done for me a mandate to help others? Because the passage goes on and says that the 12 were with him, the 12 disciples. Man, God has given them incredible grace choosing some people who didn't really make the resume cut, if you know what I'm saying. He forgave them, he led them, he gives them grace, instruction. But then it mentions certain women, and the highlight here is these certain women. And these certain women are going to remind us about the grace of forgiveness. To reflect on how much God has done for us and how much he's done for them. The Bible is not about people who don't struggle with difficulty and depression and, and, and relational struggles. The Bible is not for perfect people. No, not at all. It's about God 
coming to us in our need and meeting us in our need. And here's what we see in, in these women here. These certain women who had been healed of evil spirits. And notice it's spirits. The spirit of depression, the spirit of fear, the spirit of suicide, the spirit of destruction, the spirit of confusion. That God had delivered them from what they were struggling with. And having been delivered from these spirits and these infirmities, they were given the grace of God's kingdom coming into their life and releasing them from some things. And they also mentions Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. She's been, del- oh my goodness, I've been delivered of seven demons. That'd be bad to have one, right? I got one demon, that's a drag. Three demons, that, that's real drag. Seven Imagine the, the bondage, imagine the difficulty and to have the kingdom of God come and cast out those kings that were reigning in her and now God is reigning in her. And the grace of God, you've been so generous to me. You've done so much for me. You've helped me and guided me and led me in such powerful ways. God, was what God did for them just an update for their life? Or is it now a mandate to say, in light of what he's done for me, I've got to go and invite other people, tell other people, show other people how to experience the same freedom and deliverance and forgiveness. They could have said, well, so glad my life's better. But they don't. Out of the grace God's given to them, they respond. We'll talk about that one in just a moment. I'll tell you the second woman, her name is Joanna. Joanna reminds us that God not only gives us the grace of forgiveness and the grace of, of healing and the grace of leadership, but the grace of bounty. Bounty. It says, Joanna is the wife of Chuzza, a very unnamed, unmentioned, unpreached about character in the Bible. So this is the Chuzza sermon. Chuzza is Herod's steward. What in the world does that mean? This is the ancient equivalent of saying Herod's CFO. And this is an incredibly complex legacy. Chuzza, Herod's CFO's wife, is now following Jesus. And I want to give you a sense of just how big and luxurious and affluent this family is. Because Joanna has been, she has seen the best this world has to offer because of the level of luxury and the level of power and the level of name recognition she has as the CFO of King Herod. She's been to the best parties. She's got the best chariots. She, people notice her and recognize her when she walks down the streets. She has experienced everything this world's kingdoms offer. And she said, you know what? Nothing wrong with that stuff, but it doesn't satisfy what I'm built for. And there's something about Jesus' kingdom that drew her away from not like, hey, I was poor and things weren't so good and I need something better. She had the best of the best of the best. And she's drawn from that kingdom to say, I've got to be part of this kingdom that Jesus is representing. So she's following Jesus, the wife of Chuzza, Herod Stewart. Let me give you a little more detail here. So Herod the Great is the one who tried to kill King Jesus. And there's lots of Herods, so let me try and keep track of them all. Herod the Great was a master architect, died around 4 B.C., 2 B.C. area, which is why Jesus was probably born about 3 or 4 B.C. They got the calendar wrong. But Jesus is born, Herod's trying to kill him off, if you remember, but Herod dies like the angel told him, you can come back from Egypt. His kingdom gets divided into four sections, 
And each one took Herod's name to continue his legacy. Herod Antipas, the one who beheads John the Baptist, and the one who reigns around the Sea of Galilee. This is the Herod we're talking about today. He basically has a third of Herod the Great's wealth and power. Herod Philip owns the area just to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Caesarea Philippi is, where Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against me. Then there's another Herod, Herod Clippus, and he's the one that Joseph was afraid to return to Judea because even though one Herod's dead, a new Herod is back. And then Herod gave a little chunk of his kingdom to his sister, Salome, who apparently he didn't like very much because she got the West Bank and they're still fighting about it today. So you can blame Salome. But she gets this little bitty section. So for the most part, think of these three Herods as getting one-third of this wealth. Now, in light of that, let me tell you how big the wealth is. Herod built cities that he owned, palaces that he owned. And I'm just going to show you two of his palaces, when in reality he had many, 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 many more. So I'm going to show you a little bit of Masada up here on your left, and down here on your right is Caesarea Maritime. So go ahead and hit the video. We're going to take a little tour of it. This is Caesarea Maritime. This is Herod's palace. He built this on the sea to be a seaport. And part of this seaport was designed to show everybody in the world how powerful he was, how much money he had, and to make this even more a luxury point. Here he had both a theater, he has a whole cityscape, and this is actually where they used to race horses in this area. This archaeological find is where they shot the movie uh, Chariots of Fire many years ago, right here at Caesarea Maritime. Herod built this, and he covered it with this very specific architectural plaster that you'll see at Masada that was sort of his signature. He worked for years and years and years to plaster everything with this yellow uh, sort of glowing color that said Herod built this. And then he tore it all off and replaced it with marble just a few years later. Here in the left-hand section, you'll see is a government building where the Apostle Paul was held while he's waiting to appeal to Agrippa and Felix and Festus. He would have heard the games being performed right outside his door, which is probably why Paul wrote words like, I, I compete for the prize which Christ has for me. This particular city built by Herod had a lighthouse, it had a Roman theater, a hippodrome, a temple, an aqueduct, amazing amount of technology at 6 BC when he put this stuff in place. But he was trying to say in everything he built, look how powerful I am, look what a genius I am. Well, then he built another palace. This one's in Masada. This was his personal residence. Also on the Dead Sea, he had a beautiful view of the ocean from his home. This whole chunk of mountain, it, took a, it takes about an hour and a half to walk up to the top of that. We hiked it, my wife and I, uh, once. We get to the top there, and he has 11 swimming pools. In the middle of the desert, there's no water. 11 swimming pools, a water reservoir so big, you could fit 11 school buses inside of it. Had to be dug out from the solid rock. His bedroom faced the Sea of Galilee, faced the Dead Sea, and he covered everything with this plaster. This was his specific Herod plaster that put on everything. In these 11 swimming pools, he had slaves that had to walk an hour and a half up and dump one little cup of water in to keep his swimming pools filled. He also created a fully functioning sauna. This is under the floor of his sauna, where the water that had been brought all the way up there was then boiled and then boiled through these incredible sauna systems that allowed you to steam room and bath in his sauna. 
from the sauna, you could then walk into his throne room. Again, this is 4 BC. His throne room was designed with a gigantic throne that made him look big. And when you came in, it made you look small. Because the goal of everything Herod built was, look at me, look what I've done, and look how small you are compared to me. Now you compare this king, this was the king of the land, this was the king everybody knew was king. This is how people thought about how power worked. And as you look at Herod's mindset to life and Jesus' mindset to life, they really come back to that question. How have you responded to what God's given you? Has what God's given you just been for you to update yourself? Or is it a mandate to use what he's given you to serve others? Herod would say life is primarily about updating yourself. And Jesus would say, if you look at his life, life is primarily about a mandate to help others. So what would happen if somebody followed you? Looked at everything you've been entrusted with, everything you've been given. And like Joanna, would you say, man, I've experienced the best of the best of the best this world's to offer. And it's great. It's, it's comfortable. It's awesome. I'm not, I'm not against any of those things. But my soul longs for another kingdom too and to use what he's entrusted to me to serve and expand this other kingdom Jesus represents. Which brings us to our third question. Not just time, not just grace. How do these women and the disciples who've been given so much, how do they respond with their money? If people looked at your checkbook, if people looked at your IRS reports and saw how you handled your money, if people followed you along or, or, or checked, your, checked your spending for a week or a month, would they look at your checkbook and come to the conclusion that life is about building my castle or about expanding his kingdom? Because these women and the 12 disciples and Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the CFO of Herod, So imagine a third of the wealth you just looked at was being CFO managed by Joanna's husband and Susanna and many others. And they decided of all the things they could spend their money on, they were going to provide for Jesus and his work from their substance. And notice they don't give from their overflow, they give from their substance. This is what would be called substantive giving. How do you know the difference between the two? Here's the difference. If you're giving from the overflow, you write the check and don't have to make any different choices. That's giving from the overflow. Your savings continue the same. Your spending continues the same. Your upgrades on your cars continue the same. Your upgrades on your homes continue the same if you're giving from the overflow. But when you give from your substance, that means you have to make different choices. Because I'm going to, for example, save so much, substantive saving means I'm going to spend less over here. Or because I'm going to spend on this priority, we really think big family vacations are a great chance to connect with family and and, and grandkids. Because we're going to do that, we're going to save a little less this year. Right? Your choice has changed. In the same way, when Joanna decided, I'm going to give to God's priorities... And I'm going to make it, it must be a big check because she had a lot of money. For her to give out a substance, not overflow. It's probably why Jesus and his disciples for three years were able to do so much work relatively without working as tent makers. 
Because it had folks like Joanna writing gigantic checks out of her substance because she wanted other people to experience what she'd experienced. The kingdom of God. The forgiveness of God. But so was Mary. And those who've been healed of, of demonic forces, they said, oh my goodness, in light of what God's done for me, the freedom I'm having, the forgiveness I'm having, I've got to get this word out. I'm going to write a check from my substance so other people can have the same thing in their life. That's what they were doing. I was reading a sermon by Martin Luther. Sometimes uh, the old, the translation and uh, just a different century he was in um, sometimes can challenge you, but not this one. He's doing a sermon when he's talking about giving. He says, and as we're talking about giving and financial giving, he says, many of you will say today, I cannot give to that. I can't afford to give to that issue or that thing or that priority of God's. He said, when you say I can't afford to give, what you mean is I can't afford to give to that without changing my choices, without sacrificing. But he said, to give without sacrifice is not giving at all. The nature of giving is sacrifice. And what Jesus is challenging his disciples to, what Joanna was experiencing, what Susanna was experiencing, what Mary Magdalene was experiencing is, in light of what God's done for me, I have to go public with using the resources God's entrusted to me to expand God's kingdom. So what's our response to these characters? Well, I think it's, Two things. We need to go public with the grace God's given us. How do we go public with your grace, what God's entrusted to you? I think it's two ways. Number one, I need to go public with my bounty. How can I, what would God ask me to do to provide for him, for his ministry, for his priorities from my substance? Like all the characters did here in the story. What would it look like for me to wrestle with, God, have you just given me what I have to upgrade my life or to expand your kingdom? And what would it look like for me to do substantial, giving from my substance type of giving to what you would have for me? And notice that God could have set up a due system, right? If you're going to be one of my followers, you pay the dues. And the poorest of poor wouldn't be able to afford it. And the the richest of rich would say, if I could write that check easily. Instead, he put a principle of giving in place that says... I want you to think about what God's done for you, reflect on the grace he's given to you, and then go and do unto others what I've done unto you. It's not legalistic. It's not guilt-based. It's not shame-based. It's, why would I not want to do unto others what God's done unto me? That was his motivation for substantive giving. It's, I want other people to be in and experience and taste of the kingdom. I think of this. Do you remember the first time you went to Disney? And you came to Disney as a kid maybe. And you came and as you walked in the door, you got to see what? The kingdom. And maybe that evening they shot off fireworks. You're like, oh my goodness. And you are inspired and you are wowed. And you are thinking new thoughts. And as you walk through the magic kingdom, you went from land to land. Each land uh, awakened your imagination, awakened your sense of childhood. It awakened you and you were inspired. And as you're walking around for your first time, you're experiencing it, taking it in. And you're saying to yourself, i got to come back. And i got to bring somebody with me. I can't wait till the kids are old enough we can bring them. I can't wait until the grandkids we can bring them, right? 
That's what kingdoms do. Number one, they inspire you. Wow, I'm inspired. Two, you thought to yourself 30 years when you went to Disney, I got to invest in this place. These are some sharp people. Little would you know they would buy Star Wars and Marvel Comics and everything else later. But you said, someplace like this, I want to invest in a kingdom that's inspiring people the way it's inspiring me. And then you want to invite other people to the kingdom. What God calls every church to do, what every Christ follower to do, is to so spread the kingdom that people are inspired by the way you live. Then they say, I want to invest in that. I want to invest in other people the way you invested in me. That's my time, my treasure, my talents. And I want to invite other people into it. That's one of the things we've done here at Horizon. We said, how can this be a little, a little facility of the kingdom that you get inspired, not by legalism, not by religion, but by the grace of God? How can I be inspired to say, whether it's Leviticus or Luke or Ezekiel, man, this book is alive and God speaks through it. And the Holy Spirit wants to work in me and talk to me and convict me and encourage me and challenge me. And I'm so inspired in my relationship with God that I want to only invest in the work here, just like Joanna did, so I can continue to be inspired. But I also want to invest so other people can, can learn, can grow, can discover the grace of God, can be healed of things and delivered of things like the women around that table. And I can't tell you how many people at Horizon would say, hey, I've been coming to church for years. And I've got to tell you this, I never invited anyone to church, ever, until I came to Horizon. In fact, if you're like me, if I said, if you, I said in church growing up like this, I like these people, but man, it's a terrible service. And I thought to myself, I can barely endure this. Why would I invite people I like to put up with this? Versus to be inspired and say, wow, yes, I want more of that in my life. Yes, I got to apply that wisdom in my life. You know what? I got somebody who, this would be helpful for them. And, and people all the time say, I came to Horizon for the first time ever. I'm inviting people to feel, to taste, to experience the kingdom. Because that's what happens when the kingdom occurs. In our kingdom, God has continued to expand the kingdom. We haven't been expanding the kingdom over the last 15 years. God continues to grow our kingdom, his kingdom. And we just try and facilitate it. Whether it's six or seven Easter services, or we got last year up to eight Christmas Eve services, and I'm like, guys, I can't do more than eight. And I'm like, you slacker. You slack. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can only do eight. But what are we trying to do? Is it hard work? Sure. We're trying to create room to facilitate the kingdom. Easter a few weeks ago, I'm standing out after the fourth or fifth service. A lady comes in uh, with her husband. They pass by the greeters. Say hi to the greeters. And just, oh. And she walks past me real quickly because they're late the service. She stops, sees it's me, turns around. She's like, just, I got to shake your hand. Never met her before. Well, it's nice to meet you. She said, thank you. For what? She said, for this place. I said, well, it's not me. She's like, let me tell you, my husband, and he's just about to step through that door, and he hears his name, you know, looks over at us. She said, there is no way my husband would attend church if you didn't have your two-service design. He looks at me, I'm thinking he's going to feel like, you know, an awkward moment or something. He's like, oh, no way I would. It's exactly right. He said, I have no way I'd attend church if you didn't do it the way you do it. 
And she was talking about how this, this two-service design that we have is allowing her to grow the way she wants to grow, allowing him to explore the way he wants to explore. Well, of course, that takes twice as much time, twice as much effort, you know, two different sermons sometimes each weekend uh, for one of us who are speaking. But we feel like to create those environments to, to uniquely present the kingdom is what God's called us to do. So that's a little bit what we've done as we think about our kingdom. How do we spend the priorities of our kingdom? It's interesting, you know, we have... In a given weekend, 1,100 people in our chapel between Saturday um, 4.30 service through, through the 11.10 service. About 285 kids are now in the kingdom. They're coming to our programs. 115 in middle school and 100 in high school. That's our average attendance. And because people travel a lot, we have about 3,000 people who attend our church in a given month. Just because of different schedules. About 1,500 people in the building every weekend. And God continues to expand the kingdom. And people saying, I've never understood the Bible. I learned more in 30 minutes than I learned in my whole religious education. I hear that all the time. And so part of what we do is say, how do we invest the money that you've entrusted to us for the kingdom? Because our, our annual budget is $3.3 million, And we're able to put 30% of that into services that we do over the weekend. We're able to put 20% of that into children's and student family. People come all the time and say, the services felt so intimate. When I saw the building, it seemed so big. What's all that other stuff on the other end? Like that's all children's space and a little room for the offices. Because we want to make children, that's part of the kingdom. Having kids so inspired by God and, and rooted in understanding of God and getting questions answered early but with volunteers who love them and care for them, we spend 20% of our budget on that. Now this number is pretty significant. We only spend 20% of our budget on facilities. And the reason we do that is because 10 years ago, 8 years ago, and 6 years ago, people made 4-year pledges, 3-year pledges, and 2-year pledges. So we were able to get into this building 100% debt-free. This building is paid off. So that 20%, rather than being 70% or 50%, like many churches, all that money going to a mortgage, we're able to only spend 20% on basic operational upkeep because people said, I want to provide for and give toward the kingdom to facilitate what God's doing here. 16% for adult ministries and 14% of what we do goes toward administration. We want to steward what God's given us well so that when you see how we spend our money, it's not just to a bunch of debt. It's actually to investing in people and programs that continue to expand the kingdom. And so I would encourage you, maybe you've been thinking about it. I know maybe you said, hey, I want to wait till tax time. I've told you that we are full. Even this service here, you see we're way past the 80% rule. And people continue to come in and say, I, I want to come to services. And God continues to grow the kingdom. So for our 8.50 service and our 10 o'clock service, we've talked about trying to raise about a million dollars so we can expand the kingdom here in our site. Part of that's going to be for live streaming because many of you said, I wish I could share that sermon or what you said or that video you showed, uh, but we're still, our services are offered on MP3s, you know, cutting edge in 1998. And so we feel like in order to live stream so you can watch services when you are traveling, it's about $300,000 of what we're trying to raise is coming from the technology that we need and a full theatrical room to, to edit that. Then we want to create another space to have a 150-person room on the other side of the building, probably in the youth theater is what Turner's suggesting, that we can actually have an overflow area that doesn't feel like an overflow. It's a very really customized piece where you come in, there's maybe a waffle bar or an omelet bar. It feels like a church plant within the church, starting fresh and people knowing your name. We've raised about $340,000 toward that right now. But we're very dedophobic here. We really feel like, you know, we need ownership and people wanting to give before we're going to move forward. 
So we're continuing to get all the ducks in a row, but we're still trying to raise about $600,000 before we can move forward to expand the kingdom. Because we could be a church and say, oh my goodness, God's done so many incredible things. Wow, it's just been great. Let's just be happy with how God's updated the work here. But we feel like we're called as a mandate to serve others and to create creating space, to keep creating space for our friends, for our neighbors, for those who want to experience the kingdom. So if you feel like, well, I didn't realize the need was that big. I figured somebody else is going to pay for it. No, we've raised about 300000 We need about $600,000 more so that we can continue to create spaces like you've experienced so people can grow. And people not giving out of guilt. I know many of you aren't giving because you can't afford to. You're like, I didn't realize there was such a need. You got a lot of things you're generous to. And I would just say, as you're thinking about God's priorities, don't make the church your only priority, but make the church a priority. Giving not only a future gift fund, but also to our operational fund. Part of what we do is we need more folks who are given at the 5000 a year level, the 10000 a year level, if this is within your means, or given a percentage of your income saying, I want to own what goes on here because I'm Joanna. I'm a disciple. I've been given so much by God, how can I not want to provide for other spaces to facilitate other people experiencing that? And lastly, going public with grace is not only about giving of your bounty, but it's also going public with baptism. Notice what happens in the book of Acts. People would believe Philip as he preached. And what is he preaching about? He's preaching about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Both women and men, when they heard about the kingdom, would be baptized. I want to go public. This is what God's done in my life. A certain woman named Lydia was a seller of purple. This is a high-end sales. Only royalty uh, in that culture or high-end sales could buy purple in that culture. Here's a woman again. She's experienced the best of the best the kingdom can offer. And when she hears about the kingdom of God... She begins to build a church in her home, if you follow the book of Philippians. And God opens her heart for a new kingdom to Jesus. And she and her household were baptized. They want to go public with what God's done in their life. And I would just encourage you the same way. If you've never gone public to tell other people publicly what God's doing in your life, we have a baptism coming up in May. I encourage you to do that. You might say, well, I was baptized, I was a Lutheran, I was a Catholic, I was baptized as an infant. This doesn't negate that, this fulfills that. Your parents baptized you so that you would one day come to your own decision. You have since come to your own decision. A believer baptism is a confirmation of what your parents invited God to do. Saying, you know what, my parents hoped God would draw me to himself, he did, and now I'm going public with it through public baptism. From the very beginning of our church, we used to do baptisms in people's backyards to celebrate God's work. This is Kenny's baptism about 10, 15 years ago. I was there that day as he talked about going public with what God had been doing in his life those first few years here. This, I couldn't believe I found this picture. This is me back when I had hair on my face and head. <laughs> and that is my daughter, Sierra, who was invested in and cared for by people in our children's program. She graduates college in about a month. And she has accepted our position as our new children's pastor. She's going to be working here at Horizon, which I'm very excited about. Oh, you can clap for a second. Um, but what I'm even more excited about is that because people invested in her so well, despite having lots of opportunities in a lot of different places and a lot of different um, avenues for her career, she said, I want to invest in others the way someone invested in me. That's what church is about. 
doing unto others as God's done to you, telling people about the grace in your life. So if you're interested in that, we're going to have a baptism class today at 1015 in Skybox A. If you just some information, you say, I've never thought about that. But yeah, I want to go public. Go public with your bounty. Giving to God's work here at Horizon and around the world. Give by going public with baptism. Tell other people about the grace in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these challenging questions. May we expand your kingdom and be ambassadors of your kingdom with our time, with your grace, and with your money. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks so much.